Right, I'm going to be reading from verse 5 of Titus chapter 1 and then Achilles is going to come up and take us through Titus chapter 2. And I must say, I can't help saying what a joy it is for me to just see a whole lot of our lay leaders and elders taking turns preaching. And it's, it's something we're going to do every year, by the way. Every late December, early January, we're going to have our lay people preaching. And it's just such a joy to watch men who've got full-time other jobs wrestling with the Word of God. It, it just is so encouraging. So I'm very grateful for it. So Titus chapter 1 from verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good. Achilles is going to come up and read chapter 2 to us. And take us through. Thanks, Achilles. Morning, everyone. Is this working? Is it? And that's working. I've been told that the purpose of technology is to frustrate man and defeat him. <laughs> so I'm very glad that it's working. Um, we're going to come to chapter 2 in a, in a moment. Um, I just want to have a bit of a recap on uh, chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Tartus. The theme is a church in Crete, uh, an island in the Mediterranean, that's the south of Italy, uh, where Tartus has a job to do. He needs to put things in order as Paul says, and appoint elders. And that's in chapter 1, uh, verse 5. And uh, the reason he needs to get on with this is that there are problems developing in the church. And that's uh, in chapter 1, verses uh, 10 to 6. There are what he calls troublemakers in the church. 
And it's not that they set out to cause trouble, because I'm sure no one who comes to church really comes with that purpose. Really do they do that. Uh, but it's in the nature of their beliefs and their practices that's causing trouble. The culture of the Cretan world has invaded the church. Perhaps better to say the uh, culture has infected the church uh, because it tends to spread and corrupt others. And Paul makes this connection in uh, chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13. Uh, he says, if you have a look there, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now, Paul isn't a bigot. He's not a racist of any kind. But he doesn't shy away from pointing out trends and trays that deviate from the Christian way. Trends and trays from society that come into the church and that uh, affect the church. Now, churches everywhere are subject to these forces and to the same problem. Uh, and our church, we want to be open to the world. We want to invite people in. But we don't want them to bring in a teaching and a way of life that will deviate us from our way or dominate us. In fact, we want the teaching of Jesus uh, to rule over us and them. And as a comparison, uh, uh, coming from Africa, um, in Africa, the indigenous churches have a, uh, are subject to influence of uh, ancestor worship. Uh, so they combine the, that idea with the Christian teaching and for ministers in the, of the gospel in Africa, it's actually pretty difficult to get them to leave it behind. But influences on our churches in this society are much more basic and mundane. Uh, we have pressures to act in accordance with local values, of course. They're things that the world wants us to conform to. And uh, you might think, well, what are these local values? And, and we know what they are. Uh, they have love of pleasure. Uh, there's the disdain for authority, um, there's disdain for discipline, uh, sport and recreation is a big thing, a distraction, uh, the avoidance of hard issues, the refusal to get serious about anything, um, the acceptance of anything that contributes to their way of life and the resistance of anything that might change it. Now that's much more subtle than the worship of ancestors, but in some ways it's kind of corrosive. A church functions because of a common faith, a shared value system. In that way, we're not different from any other organization, uh, but we face the pressure from the outside to conform uh, to the outside. Now, our church is affected by these sorts of pressures to some degree and at different times. Uh, for instance, the commitment we have to each other as uh, the body of Christ uh, sometimes looks a bit flaky. Uh, in the sense that some of us come to meetings when it suits us, uh, some will come and go with no sense of belonging, and, and the cohesiveness of a church depends on everyone sharing the values. Now, the question is, do you care about this sort of thing? Okay. Do you care about maintaining the purity and the unity of the church? This was a vital issue for Paul. And the purpose of that question is not to sort of pressure you into a better attendance record, uh, but to raise the question of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. The church is a rehab center for the soul. We come here because our souls need it, and we need to commit to it for it to work for us. 
Now, Titus has been instructed by Paul the Apostle to try and sort out this Cretan problem. Uh, some of the people in the Cretan church are obviously not believers, but others are, and they've been influenced to act in the same way, and they in turn are perpetuating the problem. Specifically, Titus is asked to appoint elders, we saw that in chapter 1, uh, who would then with him challenge and rebuke those who are acting according to their carnal instinct. This is the means that we have of sustaining and growing a godly church. We appoint leaders who are charged with looking after the people, pastors of the flock. And what must they do? Well, that's what chapter 2 is about. So let's look at chapter 2. Look at the advice that Paul gives to Titus. So we've seen, if that works, I know it doesn't. Yep, the challenge of the Cretans was in chapter 1. That's not the clash of the Titans, the challenge of the Cretans. Um, so we're going, going to look at chapter 2. Let's have a look at it. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Well, what's the first thing that Titus must do? Well, it's a need to teach. That's in verse 1. He says he must teach what accords with sound doctrine. In fact, that's the primary thing he must do. Everything flows from that. When he says, as for you, that's in contrast to others. That is, Titus must hold his ground, even though others are not doing that. And notice how this is phrased. He does not say, teach sound doctrine, but teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what's the subtle difference there? We must certainly teach sound doctrine, but more than that, uh, we must expound it into our practices. In other words, we have a framework of sound doctrine, 
and everything must flow from that. For example, God is love is a statement of doctrine. Love your neighbor is a teaching which accords with that. Love, Bruce and Sheila, who live next door, also flows from that. So you can see that it must all flow. There must be no contradiction between uh, our doctrine and our practice. So when we come to matters of behavior in the church, we expound those characteristics that are consistent with our knowledge of Christ. He is our role model. So, brothers and sisters, we're not to be superficial in our teaching. In Christ we have all the depths of wisdom and knowledge, it says in the scripture. We share in the fullness of Christ. We're not to be content with an understanding that is a mile wide and an inch deep. Our faith is built on our understanding. And those who fall away from the faith have had their convictions undermined somehow. And the only way of preventing that is to keep building those convictions. If you do nothing, your convictions will be undermined. I want you to listen to the lament of the writer to the Hebrew Christians who should have known better, and that's Hebrews chapter 5. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Our church is dedicated to teaching what is solid food uh, for the soul, what accords with sound doctrine. So I'd urge you to make the fullest use of what you have available here. Expect it from the pulpit. Dwayne loves to preach sound doctrine, so come and hear it and be consistent. Right, so next thing we have in this passage is that godliness is the natural outworking of the gospel. And in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, we'll see that. We're going to come back to verses 2 to 10 later, but I just want to make the point that Paul reminds Titus what the pattern of godly behavior looks like in verses uh, 2 to 10, but he um, it's not just a a list of rules uh, in, in in this passage. And the way we we see that is that um, later on in, in those uh, later verses, verse 11 onwards because if it were a list of rules we would be no better than the Muslims and the Jews who have a list of rules uh, reams of religious practices and we would have our own rules for our church you know, come to church once a Sunday go to the home group, go to one church picnic and you're done and up to date okay? we don't have that okay we're not prescribing religious behavior. And in fact, Titus, uh, or Paul in this passage, is not prescribing how you approach God, or keep God happy, or keep God at bay. It's not about devotional practice. This is about righteous living, how to live every day. And please understand, the reasoning behind the behavior is not that you can earn your place as a good Christian. You can't do that. He says, instead, that this is a natural outworking of the gospel. Look at verse 11. 
the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all types of people, training us, or instructing us as children, training us to renounce ungodliness. What's being taught here? What has appeared? The grace of God has appeared and it's training us. So grace is your instructor and your trainer. Grace shows you how to live. And because you've experienced grace, you live in a certain way. So this is transformation on the inside and having an outworking on the outside. This is a change of understanding leading to a change of heart, leading to a change of behavior. And some of us confuse the head and the heart, but anyway, that's the process. This is an important statement. Listen to this. Salvation is about the defeat of sin and the victory of righteousness. That's what it's about. The defeat of sin and the victory of righteousness. In verse 14 he says, It's to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If that's not what you want, you're in the wrong building today. Um, It's not just about accepting Christ or assenting to Christian practices. The grace of God appears and we follow it. We follow Christ. Our salvation is both secured and accomplished, but it's still playing out. We still have a role. It was said of the Cretans that some profess to know him, but by their deeds they deny him. So it's not good enough to start following, but then to trail off. You've got to keep up and you've got to play out your faith. Now don't let that be said of any of us here present. We don't know what's in the heart and you all look great to me, you know, uh, but God knows what's in your heart. This is about the working of grace and goodness in the heart and that's where the battleground is. Well, I've been reading, you'll laugh at this, I'll be, I've been reading Charles Dickens lately. I've been through three books. When I was at school, I hated it, but I think I'm old enough now to understand it. Um, I've read one and I've listened to two more. Bleak House, David Copperfield, Tale of Two Cities. Now, what's impressed me about Charles Dickens uh, is that he believes in goodness and grace. In his books, he describes the workings of each character's heart. Some are evil, some are good, some are in the middle, most of them, and some of them are thrown this way or that way, depending on circumstance. And it's an appreciation that's been lost today. Out there we've got cynics. We're all cynics today. Public and the media, leaders of the people, don't have a fundamental conviction about right and wrong and the love of goodness. They have convictions about you know, survival, you know, how to get ahead, how to justify oneself, but not much love of what is inherently good and true. But we believe in goodness because of God's goodness. We are living in an in-between time. God has announced his salvation, but he waits to collect all his people before closing up shop. In verse 13 he says, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting. We have reason to put effort into our lives. Because nothing is wasted. We are pursuing God's purpose for our lives. Want to know what the plan of God is for your life? Here it is. It's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. Whatever your hand finds to do, 
do it to the glory of God. And if you can't do it to the glory of God, then try something else. A love of goodness motivated by the love of God in Christ is a spur and incentive for holy living and godly living. Try to describe salvation in those terms as a, a practice, a process, not just a start and then that's the end of it. But let me give you an illustration. Listen to the story. It's like a synopsis of a movie. Okay? A murderous gang go on a rampage. The cops chase them. They are trapped, surrounded. Suddenly, this is in the movies, remember, a helicopter swoops in and they tumble in with shots firing about their heads and they fly away and they're saved. What's wrong with that picture? Well, they're not saved really, hey? They are still murderous thieves. Okay? Now listen to the revised version of the story. Murderous gang on a rampage. The cops chase them. They're trapped. They're surrounded. Suddenly, a helicopter swoops in and they tumble in and they fly away and after a couple of days on the run, they decide to hand themselves in and take the consequences. They go to prison. They spend their time well. They're released as free men. They spend the rest of their lives earning an honest living and doing good to those around them. They are saved. Okay? They have learned their lesson. They've been trained to be self-controlled. Now we've been saved on a grander scale than that. We are a murderous bunch. God has pursued us. We have turned ourselves in. He has taken the consequences for us. Christ has died. We live for him. We are being trained in righteousness. We are saved. Godliness is the natural outworking of the gospel. If you don't love godliness, you have not understood the gospel. You're disabled in a way, partially sighted, or keeping your eyes shut. Now thank God that he's given us light. And this is a church that loves righteousness. I see it in many of you. Most of you. Almost all of you. I can't think of anyone I don't see it in. <laughs> the gospel is working here. And now at our elders' meetings, we give thanks for what the Lord has done in this church. Okay? Let's keep building on that. Let's, let every new person that comes here not be mistaken. We're not a club where membership is casual. And we, and we don't come as it pleases us and go when we have better things to do. We are a company of the saved. And we are on a mission to be saved from evil and take as many people with us as we can. That's our mission. So let's move on. Let's move on to the pattern of life. Having described the general uh, outworking of the gospel, let's look at the, the pattern of life that is expected of us. As you look through these verses, uh, you see that much of the behaviour that is expected of Christians is common to all categories. So, uh, you've got all these categories of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. But, there's a summary in verse 12. If you have a look at verse 12, it summarizes it for all persons. And what does it say here? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, there are three concepts here. Uh, that we have ungodly versus godly. We have worldly passions versus self-controlled. 
and we have upright or righteous. And we're going to talk about those in turn. First thing then, the word translated godly or ungodly actually is an equivalent for the word pious. It's not a word we often hear these days. It's kind of fallen into disuse. Um, The idea of this is a devotional heart. Not a devotional practice, but a devotional heart. The idea is to bring your everyday activity into the realm of worship. It is to bring God into every part of your life. When you consider anything, when you have to make a decision of what to do, you bring God into the consideration. When you are happy, you thank God. When you are struggling and anxious, you commend yourself to God. When you consider world events, you think of God's sovereignty. When you look at an animal or a plant, you admire God's handiwork. This is the life that is never alone because you're always bringing God into it. That's the devotional heart. This is the Christian life. This is how it differs from the world. Don't be driven by other things. Keep the Lord in your heart always. So that's the word godly or pious. We are all expected to have devotional hearts. Second, we have the the phrase worldly passions or could be translated worldly lusts versus self-control. Well, we all know what worldly passions are. These are the things that our bodies and our minds crave in excess, like an addict. They are things like comfort and pleasure, laziness, sex and food, self-importance, pretty things, power over others, money, possessions. Many of the things we want are good in their own place, but we are being lured into excess the whole time. And the world is marketing itself to you 24-7. It knows what buttons to push. It has you covered. There are people out there who make it their business to find out how to sell you more stuff and get you to buy into their lifestyle, which is to consume more of everything. There are porn pushers and drug pushers at the one end, but even at the other end, travel agencies, banks, universities at the other, who want you to work in a certain way and to like their product. Even our government pushes the line that uh, the individual is free to indulge as long as the government can keep order and be re-elected. No austerity for us, but continued and everlasting stimulus. Now, we don't want to get paranoid about every institution out there, but you need to be aware of the tendency to excessive consumption when compared to the moral life that God wants you to lead. So that's worldly passions. Now, on the other hand, what does it mean to be self-controlled? Well, this word occurs in verses 2. You'll see that older men, to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure. That's the the ladies. Verse 6, likewise, they urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And in verse 12, so you can see that it's a theme that runs through the whole thing. Okay? In Greek, it's the word sophronos. Okay? And its root is in the idea of being in your right mind. To be self-controlled is to be in your right mind. And the most explicit uh, illustration of this is the, the man in the country of the Gerasenes in chap- Mark chapter 5. Uh, he was a demon-possessed man <coughs> and he was naked and wild and he couldn't be kept bound and he would cry out and he would hurt himself. Uh, yet, 
when the demon possession was driven out, the demon inspired madness, he was found to be, it says, clothed and in his right mind, in his senses. That's the same word. So it's his sensibility of mind, an evaluation of all things in the light of God's presence. It's mind over matter, not being driven by craving, but being ruled by a rational mind, a mind informed by truth. The Christians of years ago uh, used to exhort their kids to possess yourself in patience. So it's kind of to possess yourself, to be in control. And Christianity is not mysticism. It is grounded rationality. It's ultimate reality. And in fact, it's a gift from God, rationality is. Even the rationality of the unbeliever is a result of God's grace. Take away grace and you have madness. Out of control and in the control of other forces. In fact, hell is a place where grace is absent. So that is what it means to be self-controlled, to be in your right mind and controlling yourself in terms of what you know and not in terms of what your body craves. Thirdly, we have upright, or more accurately translated, righteous. So not only pious, not only self-controlled, but also righteous. And the question is, is righteousness an issue to you? Is it an ongoing issue? You are a beneficiary of the righteousness of Christ. You are no longer condemned. But do you love righteousness? It's not going too far to say that this is fundamental uh, to your life if you're a Christian. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's unrighteousness that ruins your life, and it's righteousness that puts it back together again. So these are the marks of a Christian church. Not about being the trendiest or the coolest or the most exciting spot in town. For us it is, but it's an assembly of right-minded people who love what is good and who are devoted to the Lord uh, who has made it happen. So those are the general uh, themes of what it means to be a healthy Christian in a Cretan church or in any church. But there's more. Okay. Paul makes some application to specific groups of people. The text covers older men, older women, young women, young men and slaves. And you think, well, why slaves or bond servants it calls it here? Well, they were the lowest in society and, and they were different in circumstances from the other categories and I suppose he felt that he had to address them. But let's look at these in turn and ask ourselves what are the specific characteristics of, say, older men, older Christian men. The word here is presbyter, but it's like elder with a small e. Okay? In verse 2 it says, They are sober-minded, dignified, dignified is translated grave as well, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Now what do those suggest to you? Well, what you have here is a man that's not easily shaken. He is consistent. He has gravity. He's not Stephen Colbert or Jerry Seinfeld. He cares too much about things to be frivolous. He's not scoring points. He's not a smart aleck. He's not trying to show himself better than he is, or cooler, or funnier. He's not a Peter Pan. He's grown up. He's not chasing the next trend. He's put aside preoccupation with money and things. And he is gentle and not aggressive. 
These are the characteristics of older Christian men. And we have good examples in this church. I'm not going to point them out, but you know who they are. Yet we are also tempted to act the younger part, are we not, as older men. We're tempted by the world to behave as the world does now. We have celebrities like Mick Jagger. Can you believe he's still around? Mick Jagger? He's still doing what he did when he was 20. Okay? He's refused to mature. He's still, he's still playing rock music. And there's a whole cohort of middle-aged and senior citizen hippies out there uh, who can't be relied upon for anything serious, don't want to be sober-minded about much. But for us, we don't want to be influenced by that. Let's grow up as we're supposed to. Let's strive to be mature. Of course, that doesn't mean you need to lose a sense of humor, but we've got to be mature. Older Christian men. What about the older women? If we may call you that, older women. <laughs> From verse 3 onwards, okay? Well, it says they are likewise, verse 3, they are likewise to be, so like the men, similar to, behave similarly to the men, mature and reverent in behavior. In fact, in fact, reverent in demeanor is the more accurate translation. So not just what you're doing, but what you actually are. But some things are added, apart from the common things, for the sake of temptations, I think, that are particular to women, or perhaps more common than in a man. Paul adds, not slanderers. Here, ladies, not slanderers. Actually, the word is not diabolus. Okay? You can recognize where that word comes from, diabolus. <laughs> is this where the idea of the devil woman comes from? Uh, my mother had the sharpest tongue in the world, okay? And, and I'm sure that's the reason for the failure of her marriage. She had just the sharpest tongue. Couldn't leave anything alone. So ladies, if you feel disempowered in any way and you can't make it up by lashing people with your tongue and uh, it also warns you not to go to drink for solace but rather to channel your energies into something which is good and, it's, and gives you an outlet in verse 4. So train the young women to love their husbands and children. Uh, so teach what is right and good. Train them. You have a role to play. And, of course, there are other places in the scripture where you can explore that. And Proverbs 31 is a, is a model of a, a woman who has a fantastically fulfilled life uh, and in, engages in all kinds of business while running a, a fantastic household. And that's some inspiration on how to live. Younger ladies. And I suppose that means anyone who's got kids in the house uh, or younger. And the fundamental presupposition of this passage, if you're married, that is, is that you're a homemaker. You're a supporter of the family enterprise. You're not leading the show. Uh, your man is depending on you and, and you are to be self-controlled and what it says, pure Agnes, or where the, word, the name Agnes comes from. And so, you're not to succumb to self-indulgence. Uh, you're to be a home worker, to, to, you're to be kind, submissive to your husband. Husbands don't deserve it. You know, one said they would deserve it, but you are to be submissive to them. This is God's way of restoring order to a fallen world. The men take up their responsibilities to lead, the wives support them. And there isn't a better way. There isn't a better way. Don't be belittled in anyone's eyes because you believe this. And 
don't believe that feminists are happier than you are. It's not true. Well, there's more to it. Uh, you know, he doesn't address the unmarried, but uh, he addresses the, the bulk of the population there. Young men. Okay, young men. What are we going to say about you? Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Self-controlled. Boy, do you need this. Huh? All that testosterone generation in you. Self-control. That's the main thing for you. If you can't control yourself, you won't control much else either. Okay? I remember when that first dawned on me. I was walking down the street on the way to an unhappy job. I wasn't yet 30, I think. And it felt like a late lesson in life. But it was like a light shining in my head. I had to work on myself. I couldn't work on my circumstances. I had to work on myself. It's all you've got. If you don't work on yourself, you won't go far. You'll just burn yourself in a variety of ways. Young men, self-control. Be in your right mind. Now, Titus himself was younger than Paul, so Paul adds a few things for Titus to model to others. So in verse 7 and 8, he says, show yourself to be a pattern for others. Young men, follow this pattern. Be doing good to others. Be deliberate. And then Paul adds something more that, that he's also told to the older men. He says, have integrity and gravity. Okay? Verse 7 and 8. Show integrity, dignity, or uncorruptedness and gravity. Now, he said this about the older men. So you need to aspire to the example of the older men as well. Don't think because you are young, you can do everything stupid and get away with it under the sun. Yes, you can have some fun, but you've got to aspire to some maturity. Don't get to 40 and still not know how to be serious. And one of the signs of a man who has not learned self-control is the one who is afraid to get married. We have a whole generation of young men who are stringing things out and not seizing the nettle of responsibility. They have transient relationships. They're afraid of commitment. They're afraid of it going out of control. That's because they're not practicing self-control. They don't know that they can get on top of this. And they are procrastinators. Have you seen the ironic t-shirt that says Procrastinators, Leaders of Tomorrow? <laughs> Young Christian men, you may procrastinate but life is going to make demands of you and so don't let people speak evil of the faith because you're avoiding responsibility. Let's move on to slaves. Oh, sorry, but shouldn't be up there. Slaves. Okay. Well, bond servants. Well, none of you are slaves, but some feel like you are. Um, Paul addresses the lowest class in society. And it's not that he approves of their position, but if you're stuck there, what sort of attitude should you have? The temptation in the context of Crete uh, was to behave like the world does. In other words, you agitate, you connive, and you pilfer, and you try and work against the yoke. And the ultimate challenge is for them to show humility in their position. Uh, not just so as to not bring the faith into disrepute, 
like others might do, but to adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Okay? In verse 10. In, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. That is to be a credit to it. That's to enhance it. To make it adorable. Jesus was a lamb led to the slaughter. The one who bears the yoke is most like our Lord who suffered. We are not activists whose main purpose in life is to see our rights defended and established. We've given up our rights. We are wrong. We have passed sentence on ourselves. Our life is in God's hands. We suffer and do not revile. So don't be a complainer about the things you're forced to do. You have so much liberty in Christ to do what is good in any circumstance. So the question is, what's the pattern of your life? Is it being drawn from what you see in the movies in the West Australian, or is it being drawn from the sound doctrine that God our, uh, of God our Saviour? So who is your real teacher, is the question. Well, lastly, we have the urgency of, the gospel, of gospel godliness. The urgency of this life. See what Paul says to Titus in verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And I've tried to be pointed today because of that. Declare these things. I've declared them, exhort them. What can we do? Well, we must impress this on our minds. These are life and death issues. These are not just, um, you know, a menu option in the cafeteria that you can take up. Okay? It's a pattern of life or a pattern of death that we're talking about here. We can't afford to be spiritual bludgers, okay? just riding on the efforts of others. In fact, if you're South African, I could say it more crudely, we're not to be slap-hut. You know, South African, you understand that. Okay? Slap-hut Christians, or spiritual bludgers, as I put it. You're having the name of Christian, but not walking according to uh, the Gospel. Now, this is not legalism. This list of behaviours is not legalism. This is a, a warning against complacency of attitude. We're not to be complacent. This church fails if it doesn't sound warnings. All is not well in the world, and the world wants this church to be like it. And we don't want to be like that. So, in closing, what must we do? Okay, let's summarise. We appoint elders who teach sound doctrine and challenge the infectious ideas of the Cretan world so that we may lead our people, as it says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's our mission in this world. Let's help each other to do that in this church. Let's Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we cringe sometimes when we uh, see what's expected of us, but in fact, these things all flow from the goodness of the Gospel. Um, we ask that you'd give us a love of what is good, and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a devotional heart, one that just runs to you at every moment. 
uh, that we may display the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that, uh, that is appropriate to our station in life. Forgive us our sins and forgive us for uh, being conformed to the world in some ways, uh, but let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may understand what is your good and perfect will for us. We commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's carry on.